This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. On October 11th, 2023, just four days after the deadly Hamas attack on Israel, the Israeli government formed a special wartime cabinet. This cabinet is overseeing Israel's military and political response in the Israel-Hamas conflict. Here's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu through an English interpreter announcing the cabinet's creation. Citizens of Israel, this evening we formed a national emergency government. The people of Israel are united and today its leadership is also united. We have set aside any other consideration because the fate of our country is at stake here. And here's opposition leader Benny Gantz with that same unity message. Just as young men and women set off to battle from the right and from the left, religious and secular, from rural areas and from cities, thus as well, the difficult decisions in the government will be reached by people who come from different camps. Because at such a time, there is only one camp, the camp of the people of Israel. Prime Minister Netanyahu repeated that unity message last week during President Joe Biden's visit to Israel. You're meeting with our united war cabinet, united and resolved to lead Israel to victory. Hamas's smashing of Israeli security and the killing of more than 1,400 Israelis, according to government officials, may have well strongly united the country around Israel's retaliatory bombing of Gaza, which has thus far killed more than 5,800 Palestinians, according to the Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza. But not that long ago, the three members of the wartime cabinet were anything but united— Embattled Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu fired and then reinstated Defense Minister Yoav Gallant over his opposition to Netanyahu's plan to radically reform the Israeli judiciary. Netanyahu and his biggest political rival, opposition leader Benny Gantz, went through multiple grueling election cycles before Netanyahu's Likud party took power again. Polls earlier this spring showed that if an election had been held this year, Gantz's National Unity Party may well have won. But of course, on October 7th, history turned in an instant. So today, we want to better understand Israel's key decision makers in this conflict. Who are they? Where are their motivations? Where do those motivations lie? And how might the politics and dynamics influencing Israel's top leaders shape the course of the Israel-Hamas conflict? Well, we'll join today by Ruth Margalit. She's a contributing writer for The New York Times Magazine and The New Yorker. She's written extensively about Israeli politics, and she joins us from Tel Aviv. Ruth, welcome to On Point. Hi, thank you. I wonder if you might just begin by uh, helping me test our theory, our thesis that we're offering here, that um, the prior relationships between Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, Defense Minister Gallant, and um, opposition leader... uh, um, Opposition, the opposition leader, Benny Gantz, are they influencing uh, the behaviors and decisions of the wartime cabinet now? Well, yes, it's true. And it's true that there is some rivalry there. Um, Netanyahu and Gallant belong to the same party, the Likud party, the right-wing governing party. Um, but as you, as you mentioned earlier, Netanyahu had fired Gallant back in March over Gallant's um, public 
sort of opposition. It wasn't even opposition to the judicial overhaul, but Gallant made the point that this was threatening military unity, mm-hmm. military cohesion. Um, and Netanyahu, you know, got very upset about this public speech that Gallant had given and fired him um, the, the, the very next day, and then had to kind of awkwardly backtrack from this dismissal two weeks later after just a wave of public protests and, um, you know, people sort of standing behind Gallant and saying that that this dismissal was um, was really wrong. Um, so, so, Gal- so Netanyahu had to walk this back, but apparently, you know, this bad, bad blood between them still exists, according to sources. Um, and, and obviously, Benny Gantz comes from the opposition. So he comes from this centrist National Unity Party that ran against um, Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud Party. And now they're, the three of them are sort of locked in this cabinet together. Um, I will say that Ga- both Gallant and Gantz have extensive um, defense background. They know each other very well. So, I mean, I, the, the two of them seem to be working well right now together. And the, the very fact that there are no leaks coming out of these uh, wartime cabinet meetings, that could be seen as a good thing, right? So there is some some development going on. It's not all sort of mm. done for show. Um, the, apparently things are happening there, um, but it's also this chaotic situation where Israel does have a security cabinet, um, about 10 to 15 members, uh, ministers, um, belong to that security cabinet. And now you have this war cabinet that's kind of overriding it. So, you know, with two cabinets happening at the same time, um, and these ministers who don't belong to the wartime cabinet kind of itching to know what's happening there mm-hmm. and, and trying to get their say, um, it's all very, there's a sense of chaos yes. for sure. Yes. Well, so can you help us understand a little better then? Um, what are the uh, the perimeters of power or decision-making power that the wartime um, cabinet has? And why was there the need to even form it? Because as you said, uh, there is an established security cabinet already. Right. So it was formed as a sort of compromise, actually, because um, Gantz at first, when this war was launched um, Saturday, October 7th, Immediately, there was a call for a national unity, a unity government, and Gantz and another opposition leader, Yair Lapid, both said that they will not join a government with Netanyahu so long as Netanyahu had this security cabinet in which there were really extremist far-right uh, ministers, including Itamar Ben-Gvir, Bezalel Smotrich, these, um, these far-right these far-right ministers, settlers who have no actual say in security matters. Not, neither of them has been conscripted to the military. They, they really, you know, not only them, but there are others there whom it was seen as a kind of um, Netanyahu placating them by giving them seats in the security cabinet. And now suddenly Israel was faced with this major war and there was a sense that the security cabinet was not at all prepared to to sort of face this challenge. Mm. Can I can um, I just so jump they, in there, Ruth, for one, one second, so to to clarify some names that you just put out there? So right. Smotrich is the is um, the finance minister, correct? 
That's right. He's and, the finance minister, and he's also um, he's also part of the defense ministry in some sort of strange arrangement. But yes, he's he's the finance minister. Okay, we will talk about him in more detail a little bit later. Uh, and uh, Itamar Ben Gavir is the security minister, correct? The national national security, security minister. minister. That's right. Yes, and he is not in this wartime cabinet. That's exactly right, and and that was a specific requirement by Gantz. Um, you know, so Gantz and Lapid made this condition that they will not enter a government with Netanyahu so mm-hmm. long as these extremist ministers were in power, um, and Netanyahu refused. Um, you know, he didn't want to. He didn't want to fire them because he knew that that way he would lose his majority in government. Uh, as soon as this war is over. Um, so he refused. And there were a few days where Israel was at this sort of, de- you know, deadlock and, and we, we didn't know where it was going. And then finally Gantz relented by proposing this compromise in which there w- they will establish this wartime cabinet um, in which only Netanyahu, Gallant, and he himself, Benny Gantz, will take part. And this will kind of override all of the security cabinet decisions. And that was seen as a way to sort of handle that situation of, of these extremist ministers. Right. OK, so again, we will speak in detail about Smotrich and Ben Gavir uh, a little bit later in the show, because Ruth, your New Yorker article uh, about uh, Itamar Ben Gavir was spectacular in its depth in, in helping us oh. understand h- how far right these two uh, ministers particularly are. But again, just to understand sort of the how unusual this situation is in Israel right now, would it be fair to say if we had a, a, an American metaphor that if the U.S. had been attacked, right, that uh, um, that the not only the, uh, the secretary treasury, but the secretary of homeland security not being on a wartime cabinet seems very like out of the ordinary. Right. That's exactly right. Okay. But I think, yeah, but partly it's because in, you know, the very fact that Itamar Ben-Gvir holds this position is, is quite unprecedented. You know, a man with no security background who has a, a background of inciting violence, terrorism, the very fact that someone like him holds this portfolio is in itself a unique position. Mm, mm. So it sounds, though, that by virtue of Gantz pushing for this, the makeup of the wartime cabinet is more centrist than Netanyahu's uh, non-wartime government as uh, until October 7th. That's exactly right. Yes, the, the, the wartime cabinet is seen as this sort of centrist force, um, even though, you know, if you see the statements coming out of Gallant and Gantz, they're very combative, very militant. But that's the mindset in Israel these days. Mm. Um, so, so you know, you have these, these kind of bombastic statements coming out. But still, if you look at the personalities, you know, forming this, this cabinet, they're quite, you know, to the center um, compared to Netanyahu's really right wing and far right government. Mm. So um, given your understanding of um, Israeli politics and these particular people, and of course the the situation Israel finds itself in now, the critical emergency situation, does it make you think that um, uh, this sort of centrist wartime cabinet would make a is going to make a different set of decisions than um, a different kind of security cabinet would would? 
Well, I think just the very fact that we're now, um, you know, more than two weeks into this war and you have the IDF, Israel's military forces, standing um, kind of prepared to go into Gaza. You know, you have a situation where you have tanks literally on the fence prepared to go into this ground incursion and yet they're waiting. And the very fact that they're waiting is seen as um, sort of you know, the, uh, under the influence mm. of this war cabinet and this this idea that, that they should wait and they should be hesitant and know all of this of the scenarios before going in, that seems to to point at its, um, yes. you know, its influence. Well, Ruth Margulit, stand by just a moment. We'll be right back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we're trying to get a deeper understanding of Israel's wartime cabinet, of the relationships between Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, and opposition leader Benny Gantz, and how the politics and uh, influences on all three of them may be or are guiding Israel's uh, response to Hamas's October 7th attack. I'm joined by Ruth Margalit. She's a contributing writer for The New York Times magazine and The New Yorker. She's in Tel Aviv and has written extensively on Israeli leadership and politics over the years. Now, Ruth, I want to take a few minutes to um, to talk about each of the, the three men individually, uh, learn a bit more about them and what's at stake for them as leaders of in this uh, wartime cabinet. So first of all, let's discuss more about opposition leader Benny Gantz. He's the head of Israel's National Unity Party uh, and, of course, has uh, gone through multiple election cycles uh, against uh, Prime Minister Be- Benjamin Netanyahu and the Likud. Now, um, Gantz does not <laughs> or rarely sees eye to eye with Netanyahu, um, now being, of course, an exception with the call for unity. So here's a moment uh, from Gantz back in June of 2021. He gave an interview to Vice News, uh, and he talked about Netanyahu being ousted from office back then before getting reelected, uh, before Netanyahu was reelected in 2022. There will likely be a coalition government Um, which is going to be formed, which will oust Benjamin Netanyahu. As his longtime rival, how do you feel about that? 
I feel that it's good for Israel that we are, it, it's a new start for us. We should say thank you, Benjamin Netanyahu. We are taking it from here. He did a lot for the state of Israel, and I don't forget that. But it's about time that we will have a new prime minister, a new government that will concentrate in solving the problems of the country and not just concentrate on its political survivability, which was the case of Benjamin Netanyahu. Again, that's uh, National Unity Party leader Benny Gantz in a Vice News interview back in June of 2021. So, Ruth, can you tell us a little bit more about Gantz and um, sort of what he brings to the table beyond his military experience, as you said, to the wartime cabinet and you know what could be at stake for him uh, and his National Unity Party as well? Right. So so the military background is extensive, as you mentioned, and, and that's really his um, his sort of calling card. Um, but as you heard in that clip, and, and that's the way he talks, um, he is, you know, he is, um, he belongs to the opposition, to the National Unity Party, but he speaks in very sort of peaceful tones. Um, he, he rarely attacks people. Netanyahu personally, um, that really is the job of Yair Lapid, another opposition leader, um, who's much more kind of belligerent towards Netanyahu and and his attempts over the past year to you know overhaul the judiciary, all these domestic issues that Israel has faced. Gantz is seen as a tempering force, and apparently, you know, from people who know him, it's not just a sort of a sort of shtick um, for kind of PR purposes or. You you know, to to um, to get more votes. That's really his personality. That's really his governing style. And so, even you saw it just now by the very fact that he um, agreed to enter this wartime cabinet without Netanyahu. Um, dismissing these extremist ministers, he basically caved and and said that, you know, that he would do this for the good of the country, Mm. even though polls have showed him leading, um, you know, sort of substantially over Netanyahu and showing that if elections were held today, 48% prefer Gantz, only 28% say they prefer Netanyahu. So that's quite a gap. Um, and, And still he decided to enter this cabinet And, you know, sources who know him, opposition figures, other opposition figures, people are quite frustrated by that. You know, they say that that this was a chance to present Israelis with a viable alternative to Netanyahu and perhaps at the end of this war oust him and, and this government. And the fact that Gantz kind of gave him this ladder, right? He, he, the fact that he entered this um, this government made it seem as though it's more peaceful, more centrist. Um, th- th- you know, people are unhappy with that. Many of, of Gantz's own party um, leaders are unhappy with that. And still he decided to do that. So there is this sense of um, kind of the good of the country, at mm. least, um, th- th- that seems to apply to him. Well, yeah, because, of course, we can't read his mind directly, but one does wonder if he felt that the choice was either be part of this unity wartime cabinet or take the risk of Netanyahu and um, his far-right security cabinet making decisions that Gantz could believe, may have well believed would lead to Israel harming itself even more. Right. That's right. Yeah. That, that, that's, that seems to be the, the alternative. Okay. So can you tell me a little bit pri- of prior to October 7th, what was Gantz's view about um, you know, the, the Palestinian question, if I can put it that way? 
Right. So, you know, it's interesting in Israel in recent years, after this long rule um, of Netanyahu, you know, he's been 16 years, he's, he's um, the prime minister here. And there is a sense that the Palestinian question, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, that's really been sidelined. Um, and that has been intentional on the part of Netanyahu. Um, you know, he has started these normalization deals with other Gulf states, Arab states in the region where the Palestinian question rarely featured. Um, and in fact, now, you know, what, what people point to um, is the fact that he has managed to um, weaken the Palestinian Authority precisely by bolstering Hamas and by distinguishing between Hamas in, the, in, in Gaza and the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, weakening the Palestinian Authority in order not to enter these peace negotiations with it, mm. not to have to concede land. And by virtue of doing that, it really strengthened Hamas. And, you know, money from Qatar kept pouring into Hamas um, in, in Gaza. This was unimpeded by Netanyahu. And we're seeing the consequences of that now. Yeah. Well, can I just ask, so, so for clarity, Benny Gantz uh, and, and uh, the National Unity Party, do they support what Netanyahu has enabled, the expansion of settlements, uh, you know, in, in the West Bank, for example? So they speak about two, a two-state solution. They speak in more um, kind of dovish terms than the Netanyahu and the Likud party. Um, and, and also they don't want to see the, the settlements expanded, but they don't, um, you, you rarely hear Gantz kind of making practical um you know, sort of points about, you know, re-entering negotiations with the Palestinians or um, dismantling some of those Jewish settlements in the West Bank. There is a sense that the status quo is sort of here to stay and that he would like not to, um, you know, Netanyahu has, is going further and, and talking about annexing annexing the West Bank. Mm. Gantz doesn't talk in those terms, um, but, but he's quite careful. You know, this isn't a left-wing um, party by any means. It's, it's very much to the center, and there's a sense that that's where most Israelis uh -huh. now stand. Okay. Well, um, but of course it's... The status quo was destroyed, right, on October 7th, uh, at least for the foreseeable right. future. Um, and so as Netanyahu has very publicly said, the goal of Israel now is to completely eradicate Hamas, which is um, a somewhat difficult goal to like, put into concrete terms. Like, What does that actually look like? What do you think the National Unity Party and Gantz in particular, you know, how would they interpret what that goal is? So actually, this war cabinet has been quite united in speaking precisely about that, about the need to eradicate Hamas. And when, when, when you try to understand what this means in practical terms, it seems as though they mean getting rid of the top Hamas leaders, mm. um, so, so actually taking them out individually. And it's unclear what the number would be. It could be five Hamas leaders, 10 Hamas leaders. There are talks about them, you know, sort of Israel chasing down. Some of the leadership is in Qatar, in Doha, and perhaps, you know, getting them there. Um, there's, a, there's a sense that Israel is trying to target all of them while also taking out all of all of Hamas's military capabilities, which means rocket launchers, these under you know these um, underground tunnels, in order to do all of that, 
um, it's quite clear that there will come a point where Israel will invade Gaza. Um, you know, there will be this ground incursion um, happening soon, but it's unclear when. And actually, the, 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 the figure out of the three in this cabinet who seems to take his time most um, about entering um, Gaza is Netanyahu himself, huh. who apparently is very hesitant and has taken kind of Biden's view so far that Israel should wait and perhaps enter negotiations over the fate of its hostages. There are over 200 Israeli hostages being held in Gaza by Hamas. Um, so these are very delicate maneuvers. But 80, um, sorry, two-thirds of Israelis do say that they want to see Israel invade Gaza. There is a, there's a sense of vengeance that's very strong um, mm. on the Israeli street, and, and it's hard to ignore. Mm. Um, and, it, and it comes from all political persuasions, and, and you see Gantz speaking in similar terms. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, well, and of course... Could I just... I'm so sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I just want to... Um, Go ahead. Uh, ...add here that, of course, while the ground incursion has not begun yet... Waiting still includes the bombardment of Gaza, right? So, um, so there's that That's is right. still happening uh, the, and bringing quite a bit of devastation to Gaza. Can I? Can we just shift to a moment uh, to to talking more about Gallant, uh, the the defense minister, because as you had said earlier, um, he had shown his willingness to criticize Netanyahu uh, earlier this year about the. Uh, the potential judicial overhaul and the effect that would have on the Israeli military. So he has been open in um, in offering a different point of view than the prime minister's before. Uh, but I want to also point out that this that Defense Minister Gallant also this month after Hamas's attack said, you know, about Hamas and the Palestinians that uh, they're, quote, you know, dealing with human animals there. So let's listen to a little bit um, of the speech that Gallant gave back on March 25th, 2023, that moment he was criticizing uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, and then thereafter was fired. The events that are occurring in the Israeli society are not skipping the Israeli army. We hear voices of frustration, of, of pain, of anger in a scope and scale I've never witnessed before. I see how these tools of our strength is diminishing. As the defense minister of the state of Israel, I'm saying clearly, the friction Israeli society is infiltrating the IDF and the security establishment. This is an imminent threat to the security of the state. To this, I will not be a partner. So, Ruth, the fact that all this happened uh, in March and April, and then come October, Hamas does this massive attack on Israel. I mean, how much, how unsettled was the Israeli military prior to October? Uh, the Israeli military was unsettled, as was all of Israeli society. There was a sense that this judicial overhaul was really um, kind of undoing Israel from within. Um, but but there, but also, if you spoke to you know military leaders, and and now what you see, the military reservists, even though those who had signed a letter saying that they will not show up for duty if the judicial overhaul 
continued and it did continue. And yet all of those reservists are now showing up for duty. You do see that at, at a time of war, the military is united. I don't think that the current um, that the current situation is, you know, it, it is the fault of, of sort of military disunity. It really seems to be the, um, sort of guided by um, misguided um, government policies in recent months. Um, you know, the, the, the Netanyahu's government has diverted um, battalions away from protecting these southern communities on the Gaza border and, and sending them to the West Bank to protect Jewish settlers there. There's a sense that the, of, of a kind of shifting of priorities. Um, and, and, and this idea of kind of bolstering Hamas at the expense of the Palestinian Authority it is part of, of this sort of misguided policy that, that kind of contributed to um, to the current crisis. Mm, mm, okay. So then uh, about Gallant's view of Palestinians uh, as well, I mean, I, I quoted that uh, very um, strong yeah. to language, to say the least, that he had used earlier this month. I mean, what do you what do we understand about his view of uh, Gaza and the West Bank in general? Yeah, it's it's very you know it's fascinating here in Israel. He's you know he's seen as a kind of tempering force, more centrist. But of course, the the, the language is is very um, militant, combative. Um, there, there's a sense now that really. Um, in Israel, there is this wish to see Hamas gone. And of course, that wish is really, you know, it's, it, what does it even mean in practice? You have two million civilians in Gaza being asked to flee their homes. They have nowhere to flee. You know, Egypt isn't opening its border. Um, they're, being, they're being sort of sent from the north to the south when Israel is, is bombarding. Many of them can't leave their homes. Um, so, so, you know, Gaza is locked in this terrible humanitarian crisis um, while Israel is trying to wipe out Hamas and Hamas is embedded within the kind of civilian population there. So the situation is really, you know, it, it's sort of, it's hard to know how this will continue and, and what the level of devastation will look like going forward. Um, at the very least, th this war cabinet and the fact that there are these more centrist figures, um, you know, forming it, it was able to detach Gaza and Israel's front in the south, in Gaza, from the northern front. There, there is not, you know, in Israel, there isn't this sense that Israel is now facing a regional war, which could very well have happened very quickly if Lebanon had entered the, the you know, the war and, and by proxy then Iran. This is so far not happening. Israel is trying to kind of um, pinpoint just Hamas and, and, and be very mm -hmm. precise about its dealings in Gaza. And yet you can see a situation in which, you know, Lebanon and the region will enter at, at some point. Right. Well, today, Ruth Margalit is helping us understand the decision makers in Israel's wartime cabinet and how the prior politics and relationships between the members of this wartime cabinet may be uh, a factor in the decisions that Israeli leadership makes in the continuation of its response against Hamas. So we'll have a lot more to talk about when we come back. This is On Point.
did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. You're back with On Point at Meghna Chakrabarty. And just a quick note on something we're working on for later this week. We're going to be talking about the Synod. That's that major meeting of Catholics currently happening in Rome. Uh, church leaders are discussing many things, whether priests can marry, whether women can become deacons, uh, whether members of the LGBTQ community can receive church blessings. So for uh, Catholics listening now, we want to hear from you. What do you think about the church's current teachings? What do you think about the possible changes being discussed? Do you think any of them are going to happen? What do you hope comes out of the Synod? Share your stories with us uh, through the On Point Vox Pop app. You can get it wherever you get your uh, apps. Just look for On Point Vox Pop. Or you can leave us a voicemail at 617-353-0683. That's for later this week. Today we are talking about understanding the wartime cabinet in Israel right now, its key leaders, and how their previous uh, political histories are influencing Israel's response to the Hamas attack earlier this month. I'm joined by Ruth Margalit today. Uh, Ruth, just quickly, um, I wanted to understand, given the fact that uh, Netanyahu fired Defense Minister Yoav Gallant earlier this year and then reinstated him a month later, how would you describe the trust level that Gallant has with Netanyahu and whether or not that's important uh, in the decision-making of the cabinet right now? It seems to be very important, and the trust level, um, according to sources who know both men, um, isn't good. Um, and you have, in fact, you know, there are these leaks about um, the Gallant asking for meetings with Netanyahu, personal meetings, and Netanyahu kind of rebuffing him. Um, there was an attempt by one of Gallant's advisors um, to go over personally to Netanyahu's bureau and ask for a meeting, ask to be heard, and also not being able to see the prime minister. Uh, there is still apparently bad blood there. But that also made both men and the IDF chief of staff release a kind of three-way statement this week um, announcing that there, that there was mutual trust, there was mutual understanding and cooperation, that they were working very well together. And the very fact that they felt as though they had to release this statement tells you something about both the level of, of I, I, what I would say is sort of distrust between the lines and also the kind of the leaks that are coming out from both, um, you know, from both sides, both from Netanyahu and Gallant, as to the level of um, 
of sort of animosity between them. Mm -hmm. That's all. I mean, they, they, you know, by all in, by all accounts, they are working together. This cabinet is convening every forty eight hours, which is really, you know, th th that's a lot. The, the, this, the the pace of it is quite expedited and seems to be intense. Um, but but still, you know, they're 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 rivals. They're not friends. And and the, the fact of this dismissal kind of hangs in the air. And also this expectation from Israelis and from Netanyahu's own government um, and, and the opposition to see him, Netanyahu, take some sort of responsibility over what has happened in Israel um, since, you know, since the, the the Hamas attack. And he has done none of that. He has not taken responsibility so far. Mm -hmm. Gallant has, other, you know, other, the IDF chief of staff has. Um, Netanyahu really refuses to do that. And, and there's a sense of kind of frustration um, on the part of people surrounding him saying that he's more he's more invested in sort of personal survival than uh -huh. he is um, in the way this war is being conducted. Okay, so that leads us then, I, I, we need to talk about uh, two of the, at least two of the other names, but we'll focus on these two, that you mentioned earlier, Ruth. Uh, and that is Finance Minister uh, Bezalel, excuse me, Smotrich, and the sec uh, National Security Minister uh, Itamar Ben-Gavir. Now, uh, just to put uh, the recent history of uh, the Israeli government in a quick nutshell, in order to secure power, uh, Netanyahu had to make compromises with uh, these very far-right political figures. And subsequently, I mean, we've been told that uh, uh, the Netanyahu government right now is the most far-right government Israel uh, has seen. So uh, some of those compromises that he made, Ruth, as, as far as I understand, for example, with uh, Smotrich, uh, is that uh, there has been the creation of a new Israeli settler agency that he is leading um, and that that gives him a great deal of control uh, over the West Bank. And Smotrich has very really much accelerated uh, settler activity and settlement building uh, there as well. So... Um, He's in the past made it clear what he thinks of the Palestinian people. I mean, for example, here's um, a moment from a speech he gave in March of 2023. So he's saying there, the Palestinian people are an invention from the past century. There is no such thing as Palestinians because there is no such thing as the Palestinian people. So, Ruth, what influence does the finance minister have right now? Well, I mean, you know, we've Israel has never had these polarizing extremist figures in its very government before. This is the first time that such far-right leaders have been able to to join a government and to hold such key positions. As you mentioned, Smotrich is the finance minister. He also holds these um, extensive capabilities in the defense um, in the defense ministry, including this, you know, this West Bank, um, this sort of controlling what's what's happening in the West Bank and budgets that are being funneled to fund um, Jewish settlements there. Um, Itamar Ben-Gvir as the national security minister, you know, th this was seen in back in January when Netanyahu formed his government as extremely controversial. And yet Netanyahu needed them 
in order to lock in his 60-plus seats majority in parliament, uh, which is needed in order to form a government. And he decided to join forces with them, not only join forces with them, but he actually orchestrated the alliance of these two, what used to be very fringe parties, one headed by Smotrich, the other by Ben Gvir. He, he last year orchestrated a joint party um, that would run together on as a joint list and, and it did very well in the latest election. It became Israel's third largest party. And so he, while now he's trying to say that he had, you know, that, that he had nothing to do with it and that he was sort of forced into bringing them into his coalition, in, it, you know, in effect, he was the one to kind of um, to make it happen and to make them as strong as, as they as they have become. Mm-hmm. And and what you see now is that Smotrich and Ben Gvir, they're sort of being sidelined by this war cabinet. And yet Smotrich is still the finance minister. And there's this expectation that he would um, sort of funnel all of Israel's whatever is needed into um, sort of wartime management and that every discretionary funding, everything that's sort of outside of wartime operations should, all that that money should sort of seize and and not be kind of moved around. And yet um, you see him still um, sort of shifting funds and, and giving these co- what was agreed on under the coalition agreements between the different parties that is still happening. The ultra orthodox are getting money for their separate education system. Um, the Jewish settlers are still getting money um, for you know t- to fund uh, to fund their their own protection and, and their own settlements. So so those coalition um, budgets are still. Um, being moved around. Yeah. And once they do, there's no, you can't, according to um, sort of Israeli law, you, you can't then move them back into funnel, you know, into funding the war. I see. So, so once these budgets are gone, they're gone. Uh-huh. Um, and, and, and there's a sense of frustration that he's kind of, he's, he's acting as though this war isn't happening mm. basically. Oh, okay. Well, um, one more thing about, uh, uh, Itamar Ben-Gavir, because again, um, folks, I encourage you to go to our website, onpointradio.org. We have a link to Ruth's reporting on Itamar Ben-Gavir in her New Yorker article titled uh, Itamar Ben-Gavir, Israel's Minister of Chaos. It's excellent. Um, but I just wanted to play a little moment of uh, of Ben-Gavir speaking. This is just from August. Uh, and he, you know, he's been very open, very transparent about his view of the uh, of the Palestinian people. And here's what he said. And he's, he's saying there, the right of me, my wife and my kids to travel around the West Bank is more important than that of the Arabs. Sorry, Mohammed, but that's the reality. End quote. So, um, Ruth, he's incredibly far right. Ben Gavir is. Uh, and I'm just seeing right now, uh, I think a day or two, two days ago in the Times of Israel, there was an article saying that Ben Gavir is demanding that Netanyahu add another minister to the cat to the war cabinet because he's been accusing Netanyahu uh, and the other members of the cabinet as having mishandled uh, the security situation that led to Hamas's attack. So, do folks like Ben Gavir see, see this as an opportunity to really um, advance their goals for Gaza and the West Bank, which are pretty much, um, you know, 
Israel's total, he, they would seek Israel's total control over those areas. Yeah. And in fact, you know, members of their own party, this far right party, openly speak about, you know, wanting um, Israeli children to be able to walk down Gaza streets. You know, they're acting as though Israel should reoccupy Gaza, not only invade for sort of military purposes, but actually, you know, sort of settle settle in Gaza, um, which Israel in, since 2005 has pulled out of Gaza and, and this idea that it would now reoccupy it as kind of this, you know, pushing in these kind of ideological um, lines in addition to the war. I mean, that's just, you know, that's really shows you his extremist views and, and his his whole party's extremist views. But he's Ben Gvir is sort of um, in this strange, awkward position where he has no security background himself. Mm. In fact, the military refused to conscript him, so he never even served in the army because of his, uh, you know, kind of agitations and and and, and provocations in the past. Um, and and now he's trying to find his footing as this kind of far right, uh, but also very sort of security minded person. And he doesn't really know how to do that. He's not a former general, as these wartime cabinet members are. So he has taken up this agenda of um, of providing Israelis with assault rifles. That's been his stance recently. He wants tens of thousands of assault rifles into civilian Israelis, Jewish settlers. Um, you know, you can just imagine yeah. the chaos that that would lead to. But that's, you know, so he's trying to sort of to take up these kind of populist ideas and run with them in order not to lose his electorate. Mm. But I will say that, you know, something at least that's that's sort of more heartening these days is that you see that he and Smotrich do seem to be losing ground with Israelis. There is a sense that these extremist views are perhaps even for just for the time being, they're not um, going as, as you know, they're, um, they're, they're sort of, they're not rallying Israelis as, as much as they, as they, they did in the past two years. Uh-huh. Um, okay. That's fascinating. Well, so that leads us to my final question for you, Ruth, because um, the war cabinet is making decisions, of course, now, but then it's also, I presume, if not the war cabinet, then the security, the the cabinet in general is going to have to make decisions about what to do later as well. So we spoke with uh, uh, Yosef Kavarvazer. He's a retired brigadier general in the Israeli Defense Forces and also former head of the research division at the IDF's intelligence corps. We talked with him a little, a little bit earlier this week about Israeli leadership in charge of overseeing the conflict, and he said, "Yes, they are all united." We have to eradicate Hamas from Gaza. We have to eliminate it, make sure that Hamas threat from Gaza will disappear. Even though they may have uh, different opinions from time to time about how exactly to achieve this goal. Uh, and uh, there's always this question, of, uh, since we didn't have uh, any uh, intention to eradicate Hamas uh, in the coming future before this happened. So they have to think of new ideas and show creativity and commitment. So while he says they may be all united right now uh, under the war cabinet, he also said, well, there is another set of big decisions coming, uh, not just for Netanyahu and his political future, but the fact that that's bound up with what to what will happen with Gaza after, if and when the wartime conflict ends. I always say in here in Israel when I'm speaking about it that it reminds me 
the uh, message by Patreus to by General Patreus to General Wallace after he won the war in uh, Fallujah. And he said to him, he reported to him, he said, I have uh, good news and bad news. They asked, what are the good news? And he said, we own Fallujah. And they said, then, so what are the bad news? He said, we own Fallujah. Ruth, we've just about, we've only got about a minute and a half left. Um, what do you think the, the previous political tensions between the men we've been talking about, what impact might it have on, um, you know, what happens after, if and when the bombing ever stops? I actually don't think it will affect the, the the consequences of the war so much as it will the day after and, you know, whether Netanyahu's government will fall and will be overthrown, whether there will, there will be another election, whether Gantz will sort of take him on head to head. Um, sort of the political ramifications will be fascinating because of these rivalries. But I actually do agree that I think they're all united right now in defeating Hamas, whatever sort of, you know, however vaguely yeah. um, that, that that is taken to mean. But the political ramifications for Netanyahu specifically must have some kind of uh, impact right now with the, what, what he wants the war cabinet to decide. That's right. And and he's also, we know that he's looking at the personal, he has his spokespeople sitting in on some of these meetings of the security cabinet. Um, there are some sort of personal considerations involved. And um, and yeah, it remains to be seen, you know, one hopes that, that this isn't the only consideration and, and that, that um, you know, that something can come out of this. Well, Ruth Margolit, contributing writer for The New York Times Magazine and The New Yorker, uh, she's followed and written about Israeli politics extensively. We have a link to her piece, uh, in most recent piece in The New Yorker. That link is at onpointradio.org. And she joined us today from Tel Aviv. Ruth, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. <laughs> 